Hey dreamers, thank you for learning with us today on DreamSpeak. I'm Rika. And I'm Thomas. And this is the podcast about dreams that teaches you a complete system to help you listen to your dreams and get the guidance they're providing you every day. The dream that our friend Leif brought to share is a big dream. So big, in fact, it will take two episodes to cover it. This is part one, Hijacked by God. Welcome to DreamSpeak. We are honored to have a guest dreamer with us today, and we'd like to just start by letting you introduce yourself. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you, Rika. My name is Leif, and I'm, I'm so pleased, tickled, really, that the two of you invited me into the space to share in this way. I have background in astrology, and I'd love to speak a little bit to how that reflects on the nature of dreaming. And I have a strong sense of spirit and spiritual life, and a series of experiences that brought me into this way of being. And I'd love to share a little about you. Thank you, Leif, for being here. Can you say a little bit about how you came to spirituality as a part of your life? I was raised in a very secular family, a family of academics. I was raised within the temple of secular materialism. And the mm -hmm. idea of just mentioning the word God was just not something that you would do. And the concept of spirituality was just that. It was a concept. I think this is the way uh, many of us in Western society, this is the frame that most of us are raised up through. In that respect, the encounter that I had with self and with the eternal, the infinite, the divine, and in particular with the essence of love was ridiculously unexpected. I was hijacked by God. When I say hijacked, it was just out of the blue. It was beautiful. So I don't mean hijacked in any negative sense, but it was wildly unexpected. This happened in the summer 2008 when I was 32. It was that encounter that shook me to the core in terms of my understanding of life, reality, myself, my place in the world. And so my life from that point to this point has been, from an inner perspective, radically changed. What happens in my day, in some respects, has changed significantly, and in others has changed very little. I still put my pants on one leg at a time. <laughs> How do you do that? I always jump into them with both legs. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could. <laughs> I'll well, try that. How I came for my spiritual awakenings, jumping into my pants. <laughs> Thank you for kicking things off with such personal stories. Everybody that I know that seems to really be deeply connected with their dreams has also had a spiritual awakening story. In the that past. interesting. Uh, spiritual awakening kicked off a lot of things in my life that I never anticipated, expected wanted, desired. <laughs> but somewhere deep inside you, I you chose that. I right? chose that. But yes. on the outer, it was very difficult to incorporate into my life. And just, it shakes you to the core at first. And then it very gradually kind of changes everything about the way that you look at the world and the way that you are in the world. Mm -hmm. I'm just really curious to hear the picture painted a little bit more for our listeners about where you went from your spiritual weight. And I know astrology is particularly important. Astrology has moved to a, a forward, front and center position. That said, my beginning to work with dreams preceded astrology. And oh. this was in the months that followed the experience that I had in Baker City, which I call 
my Baker City Thunderbolt, mm-hmm. otherwise known as BC One. <laughs> uh, it was a beautiful summer's morning. I'd run for miles, and then I was gone. I ceased being there. I was no longer in that valley on that trail. I was no longer in my body as I had any awareness of it, and I was moving backwards through my experience of life. Literally, I was going backwards instead of forwards, and I was reliving every moment, every thought, every feeling, every breath of my existence in the opposite direction. And, and it didn't stop. I went back into my mother's womb and I went back into egg and sperm, back into my mother and father. And all of this was self. I was living their lives now backwards. And this is not thought. It was a memory. My grandparents through a whole lineage of individuals that I can't identify. And then from individuals into various animals, into plants, flowers, earth, dirt, the air, the water, the clouds, the atmosphere, the earth itself. I remembered and experienced my life, my conscious life as the earth, the sun, the moon, Mars, Venus, Saturn, my life as the entire solar system, my experience of space, stardust, the vacuum. All of it was self. And it, I, literally took a tour across time and space backwards. And it was all one memory, one being, one self. And the underlying, the most potent experience of self was love. And it was love in a way that I had never known love before. It was the deepest possible sympathy, connection, care, but it was full of intelligence, wisdom, power, Love was the fabric. Love was the underlying feeling, the underlying motivation, the particles. Everything was self and everything was love. And I came tumbling back into my body a few miles down the road, bawling like a baby and laughing hysterically and hugging myself, stumbling. (laughs) I was just overwhelmed with a sense of gratitude. It was shouting out thank you to everything that I could possibly think of to thank. And the last thing that left my lips was, thank you, God. And again, this was a word which was fairly anathema to my experiences myself, as life. And that left my mouth. And I immediately had this sensation that that was it. I had just encountered God and that God and self were one and the same thing. And that God and everything were one in the same. Whatever name we choose to give God, whether that is Allah or Brahma or Great Spirit, however we choose to define that. I discovered in the days that followed, I was straddling the veils that I was not in my awareness as I had understood it previously. I could move through my day, move through encounters and activities, but I was seeing through all of it to patterns and realities and a presence that was deeper simultaneously. And it was ecstatic. It was wild. It was wonderful. And it was simultaneously very difficult to try and make sense of it all. And within that context, the dreams that were coming to me were incredible. There were a number of occasions where I would enter a dream. And then within that dream space, there would be a gateway or a portal that I would incidentally encounter and move through and find myself in a completely different state of awareness that was without any doubt, not the dream awareness. 
I'll call it hyper-reality, because I would enter states of awareness that were far more real, experiences that were far more real than anything I've ever experienced in my waking life. I was being rocked by, by dreams at night, and I was being rocked by a reality of this three-dimensional material world as a dream, as another dream state. And this went on for a number of months. And so I just became aware of these various layers of consciousness, different realms of experience. And that the locus of one's attention could shift from one to the next to the next. And sometimes could be in a space that straddled multiple realms of being simultaneously. There is so much more real life within us that most people stay unconscious of while they're living in this plane. And, you know, when we talk about the philosophy of dreaming on our podcast or on our videos, that's kind of what we're touching on. Uh, message dreams are the dreams that people have the most often, and they can be very helpful. And we can have really important message dreams. And that's what we usually call a big dream. And they can give us guidance that can be valuable to us for years. But under all of it, these are altered states of consciousness or levels of consciousness that point towards a much more complete reality and an incredible way of being incredible, amazing truths about who we are beyond all the veils and disguises that we wear. I love the way you put that. Thanks. I, you know, we've got a pretty good sense of why dreams are valuable to you. Can you tell us a little bit about how you came to astrology and why that's been such a useful tool to you? since your spiritual awakening? Absolutely. I had encountered my most prominent and instrumental teacher of astrology in a dream or a in reality. That's usually the that, premonition because that is just such an interesting topic. A premonition dream, exactly. And in that premonition, he was literally given a role, an identity as, quote, my psychotherapist. And this particular individual, I'll give him his full name, Franco Santoro who's Italian, but at the time he was working at Fintorn, residing at Fintorn in Scotland. He practices a form of astrology that he calls astro-shamanism. Another way we could talk about that is simply experiential astrology, reaching into and doing one's most to embody an archetypal shield of identity or energy. So uh, what we would consider to be an astrological sign or planet. Um, so you were guided to it. Your soul I was guided into it. I, I was, yeah, I was. I wasn't guided into, per se, the types of astrological practice that we might be more familiar with. Uh, I eventually found a school or a path in Western astrology that is known as evolutionary astrology that had a stronger resonance with me. And it was at that point that I began to dig into a more conventional astrological practice more deeply, but always with this experiential model in mind. So that over the years, ultimately what I've come to practice, I myself call un-astrology because I do not have any desire to use astrology to define the self in a way that would give the separate self too much definition, too much permission to cave in or to balkanize a sense of identity based off emotions of the planet. This is who I am. This is what I am. This is what I do. And this is the way I'll always be. This is the opposite of what I would suggest astrology was destined for, that this practice was 
at its fullest, at its essence, what astrology shows us is that our personalities are not locked within our bodies, that our personalities are not locked within our brains, and they're not even locked within our genetic and familial lineage. The movement of what we call planets amongst the stars and the heavens has a profound impact on who we are and how we experience the world. So our sense of self, what is self, dramatically expands into a celestial identity. And that reflects what I personally experienced as a memory while running in the hills outside of Baker City. And that's why I'm concerned with astrology. And when I work with clients, that's my overwhelming consideration is how can I help individuals expand their self, their sense of self, and how can they move into more flexible and more creative states of being rather than caving in on ourselves. That's a real gift for your clients. <laughs> yeah. But I think now is the time for us to actually uh, recap the dream that you wanted to interpret today. So it's a long one, a profound one, and I'll just ask you to run through details of what happened in this dream. And let me add one more thing. A teacher of mine, his name is Brent. He used to run a workshop called One Discovery and Being on Purpose. And Brent shared with me a dream many, many years ago that he was riding in an old-fashioned 19th century train car. So you go into the compartment and there's a couple of wooden benches facing each other. And he's alone in this compartment and he's sitting quite still and the door slides open and in steps a great big hulking ogre. And Brent jumps to his feet and it turns out he's got a samurai sword slung over his shoulder and he unleaves it and in one swift motion lops off the head of this great big ogre. And the dream is over. But this dream would impress itself on Brent night after night for several weeks. It was one of these recurring dreams. Every night it was the same thing. After a couple of weeks of this, finally a night comes, the same sequence of events. The ogre comes in. He reaches for his samurai sword. Something inside him says, wait. He waits and he's looking into the fierce face of this hulking beast and he waits. And suddenly the ogre transforms completely into a beautiful little five-year-old girl. And this girl leaps into his arms and literally dissolves into his heart. Into his heart. As he described that, he felt very certain that this was a lost part of his soul or his identity, some innocent feminine aspect of self that he had pushed away, closed away. And, and when it came back, and it happens, he was in a very difficult position in his marriage at that time. Following this encounter, he and his wife were able to make really wonderful strides forward in their relationship. That's very powerful. Yes. I want to just focus on the presence of this ogre and the presence of the samurai sword and the presence of the feminine, in this case, an innocent five-year-old girl, right? You, Brent told you about this dream before you had the dream that you're about to share with us? Exactly. So Brent told me about this dream 2007, 2008, many, many years ago. And I had effectively forgotten the dream that I'm about to relate to you is a dream that I had in the autumn of 2019. So roughly 10 years after. Okay, great. So yeah, just to clarify again for our listeners, that was a dream that belonged to a friend of Leif's and it's going to inform Leif's dream that he's going to share with us right now as you're about to find out. Okay, let's go into the dream, shall we? 
the dream begins and I am engaged in this fantastic aerial combat. I'm part of a GI Joe rescue team and we're in a kind of a attack helicopter that is simultaneously a rescue helicopter. And there's this wild battle taking place in the skies over a tropical ocean. G.I. Joe battling their nemesis, Cobra. So there's all these crazy helicopters and jet fighter craft swooping around, explosions, missiles, and hardcore machine gun fire. It's very frenetic. And at some point, Cobra Commander's fighter ship crashes into the ocean and sinks beneath the waves. And our rescue team is intent on recovering the body to make sure the Cobra Commander is indeed dead. So our rescue team swoops down to the surface of the ocean. A number of soldiers and myself, Donar, scuba deer, dive into the ocean and beneath the waves and begin descending towards Cobra Commander's craft. And there's even under the waves, while it's immediately a far more peaceful environment, you can still see other ships and fighters crashing and sinking beneath the water and occasional missiles and things jetting through the water but there's a strange and profound sense of peace as we descend towards cobra commander's craft and i find cobra commander face down in the sand on the sea floor here and he must be about 50 feet deep because everything has gone in the shades of blue and gray and we're just beginning to lose light so things are beginning to turn gray and there he is face down in the sand his helmet has fallen off. He's clearly dead, but I can see the back of his head. He's bald. And right at the base of his skull are three cobra tattoos, the classic cobra symbol. And I see this, and my attention focuses on this blue-gray bald skull with these three cobra emblems tattooed on the back. And at that point, there is a profound shift. You can say that we're leaving one dream entering a very new, perhaps separate dream or dream space. Okay. So let's just take a minute to recap. The G.I. Joe imaginal world is about this army of soldiers that are uh, the heroes in that story. And then they battle against this kind of terroristic force that's known as Cobra. Do I have that part right? That part is right. And this was a series of toys, comic books, and cartoons, especially present in the 80s and early 90s. And we will definitely go into some depth there because that was a really big toy that you played with in childhood, right? This was the essence of my childhood. Okay. Awesome. Okay. Great. All right. And so then Cobra Commander is the leader of all the Cobra forces, right? Yes. And then towards the end of my interest in these toys, a new backstory was generated for Cobra, which was an alien reptilian organization with profound technology, in particular genetic technology. Interesting. And the chief's kind of metaphorical or mythological sense connecting reptilians with the human shadow. And one thing you've shared yeah. with us in the past is you said it's like the expression of the ego in maximum separation from everyone else. Yeah. really stuck with me. And I noted that you called it a rescue mission. Because in the narrative of the dream, the biggest thing that happens is you actually do manage to defeat and kill the commander of this wicked army. And then his craft sinks under the ocean. Is that right? That's correct. And then these the tattoos, are those tattoos of cobras? I 
I'm not familiar with the cobra tattoo. Right. So there's there is a very specific emblem that reflects cobra, the nemesis, the terrorist force, primarily of the, the cobra snake's head, fully extended. And there were three tattoos. Is that right? There were three. Yeah, in a horizontal line, right where the base of the skull meets the neck. Great. So now on to the next dream. Yeah. Well, I, I should put one point of context here. I had been in conversations with a leading astrologer. I'm just going to call him JP. And we were in the process of scheduling a reading for myself when I woke from this particular dream and put a stop to the conversation. Okay. So I'm in the, the living room of a home, relatively large, relatively well-appointed and wealthy. And my memory does not recall the exact number of figures. And in essence, it didn't matter because I knew that it would be 12. There's light filtering into the parlor, but there's very gauzy curtains that have been drawn. So the light coming into the room is quite filtered. And in the room, there is a circle of 12 elderly women, I'm going to say between the ages of 65 and 100. And they are all very scantily clad in very revealing lingerie. And they are slowly dancing in what is obviously a ritualistic circle. And I'm not present, just my awareness, just my consciousness is present looking at this scene from afar. And there's something about my awareness that is repulsed by the scene that I'm watching. But that sense of repulsion grows as 12 ogres enter the room one by one. And each ogre very gracefully pairs up with one of the elderly women. And now we've got 24 figures in the room. And they are continuing this slow, rather graceful, and clearly deeply ritualistic dance, a circle dance around the room. And at some point, there's a pause. And each ogre steps back from the woman that he is dancing with, reaches over his shoulder, puts his hand on the hilt of a samurai sword, and very smoothly, cleanly, and quite swiftly begins to draw each one their sword. And at this point, my awareness, my consciousness, my presence is really in a state of total recoil because I am completely aware that each one of these women is about to be decapitated. Mm. And for some reason, clearly that needs to happen. The women are completely aware that this is going to happen and are in a state of ease or comfort or acceptance of what's about to happen. But I'm terrified. Mm. And as this motion continues, I'm looking directly into the face. And I should say that from behind, each one of these ogres is bald with uh, gray-blue skin. And each one of them has the, the basic appearance from at least behind the appearance of Cobra Commander beneath the waves slung face down in the sand. But at some point, my awareness goes face-to-face, eye-to-eye, very, very close, eye-to-eye with the lead, so to speak, ogre. And I am looking absolutely into the eyes of JP, mm. this rather renowned astrologer just before he's about to strike off the head of this old woman. Mm. And I wake up in a state of complete shock at this point and horrified. The scene was lurid. There was about to be gruesome, bloody death. And he just emblazoned in my mind is the, the visage, the eyes of this renowned astrologer and a dream. Wow. That was something. <laughs> My goodness. Yeah, I thought it was something too. I, and I had a very difficult time coming to terms with this dream because I did not want to go back into that space. 
I didn't want to be there at all. I didn't want to think about the dream. I didn't want to analyze the dream in the immediate moment. I just took it as a warning to, to not go through with this particular reading. And I just wanted to let it all go. At that. It was just a little too much. As we start our interpretation here, I'd like to underline that this is an issue that we experience and that everybody that we've worked with experiences. Whether it's a nightmare or not, sometimes these dreams, the material is really overwhelming. And I think gentleness in dream interpretation is important to me, at least. One of the things that we share with our listeners is that you'll get another message about the same material. If you need it, if one message is not enough, you'll get a dream that looks nothing like the first, but you'll get more communication from your soul about the issue in your life. I have a lot of respect for the fact that she decided to just be patient with this. Thank you, Thomas. And I, I'll point out too that the, the visceral nature of the dream, the details of the dream, haven't gone anywhere. They're as present now as they were then. So that's a clue that you might've had a big dream, right? That's one of our main clues that we know we've had a big dream if it is just unforgettable. Yeah. Yes. Definitely. And thank you very much for honoring us with bringing the dream. I think that we're going to have a really interesting time interpreting this dream. There's a lot of symbols and not as many aspects, meaning the living sort of human or humanoid characters in a dream, but we got a lot. So we could just it's dive deep. right in. It's deep, <laughs> just sure. like the ocean. <laughs> yes. All right. Take the deep dive. Might as well start with some material from the first dream. Basically, we always follow the same method. So it would be great for us to just pinpoint both for our benefit and for our listeners' benefit, some of the symbols and all of the aspects from the first dream. So if we were to make a list, the only real aspects that I see in that dream are you as the dreamer, the other G.I. Joe soldiers that are fighting alongside you, although it doesn't seem like their individual personages are very important to this narrative, and then Cobra Commander, right? Right. Okay, so we have those aspects. And then we've got a lot of symbols. What are some of the symbols that you see in the G.I. Joe dream? The ocean and the sand at the bottom of the ocean. I think that is a really potent symbol. The Cobra Commander and his tattoos, that seems to be very important. And the color of his skin as he went down to the bottom of the ocean. What else? Well, just the overarching issue that there was a war going on. Conflict. Yes. Really intense conflict and explosions. Leif, what else do you see? As we're speaking, I, I will say this, that the quality of the water, the clarity and the color, the presence of the sand and the three tattoos, my awareness of those elements in particular is overwhelmingly strong. There seemed to be a laser focus, a magnifying glass on those elements. Wonderful way of describing it. So we always try to encourage people to focus on those things. When you have that magnifying glass sense, it's clear that your inner self is really trying to draw your attention to those symbols. And then that sensibility of the emotional response. Right. Okay. So interestingly, I think our best approach is going to be to look at the second dream, break it down into its aspects and symbols as well because we're going to find that these two dreams have really important parallels. We might even pause now to explain why we feel so confident about that. There's a concept that we have found fruitful in the interpretation of symbolic or message dreams 
which we call same night, same theme. And essentially what that means is when you have two dreams like this, or sometimes even more, I remember once, Rick, didn't she have like five or seven dreams all the Her 10. I don't know. It was so <laughs> unusual, but nonetheless, what we found is the multiple dreams that we remember in the morning, if they're message dreams, they generally all relate to one central theme. And they're trying to give us that message from different facets so that we can put it together. So I want to go through the, the ogre dream and break it down into its aspects and symbols, perhaps a bit more quickly, just because the goal here, employing same night, same theme, is actually to go back to the G.I. Joe dream. It's just we want these symbols top of mind so that we can find those parallels organically as they come up. So aspects are essentially the ogres and the elderly women. Okay. They're the people, so to speak. And then when it comes to symbols, we have a lot and some of them are even a bit concealed at first, but the lingerie and your emotional response to that is really important in the stream, I'm sure. And then we have the samurai sword. Like you were just saying that each one had a samurai sword. And that goes back to his mentor's dream as well. Brent. Yes. It's a sword. And the ogres. And the ogres. Yeah. So we'll get to all of that. And then what are other symbols that came in that second dream with the ogres and the elderly women dancing together? Just the dancing and being in a circle. It's very ritualistic. Yep. There's a ritual. We have- I'm going to say the number 12. Yep. Yes. Thank you. Number 12, the number 24 conceivably, but definitely the number 12. And then the concept of duality and the number two is going to be a symbol mm-hmm. name as well. The only other thing I'll add- only because, again, there seemed to be something of a magnifying glass on it was the nature of the curtains or the drapes. Ah. Very gauzy, the light filtering through, very much like a veil. Okay. Because some have thought of that as the concept of veil. Uh-huh. Fantastic. And, and that the ogres had the blue-gray skin like yes. Cobra Commander. Just like Cobra Commander. There seemed to be a strong identification or link between Cobra Commander and the ogres. Mm-hmm. Okay. Oh, one more. Yeah. One more association jp the eyes all right that's so important yeah one of the most salient details of all okay so let's jump back in and we're going to actually start interpreting now that we've kind of made our list there's a lot of things to tackle here and we may not get to all of them but our goal is always to get to a place where you feel that you gained a lot of insight into the dream so i think that we can do that all right fantastic So starting with the aspects in the G.I. Joe dream, we have essentially you as the dreamer and our belief about the dreamer is basically that that aspect of you is a representation of your present state of consciousness. And it just gives a sense of this is kind of where I'm at in my waking life right now. That's the dreamer when they show up in the dream. So every other aspect is going to represent a limited quality within you. But when the dreamer is doing something in the dream, it's giving you information about how is this impacting me in my present state of consciousness and development. And you were right at the center of the action in that dream. You were very much doing, you were active, right? And so Mm -hmm. go right to the parallel with the dream of the elderly women and the ogres. And if you'll indulge me, as we continue to interpret, I'd like to call that Crohn's and Ogres. Is that a reasonable name? I like it. (laughs) Crohn's and Ogres. So looking back at the Crohn's and Ogres, the dreamer wasn't there, but you were responding to what was being experienced by the Crohn's and the Ogres in a very visceral way, but you had no power over it. Right. I wasn't physically present in the scene, in the action. They were just an observer. 
And it's interesting exactly. because in a lot of dreams where the dreamer isn't present and we're observing, we will find that our responses are quite neutral. And in many dreams where we interpret the observer not being there and just being an objective presence, we have found that these tend to be dreams from more elevated states of consciousness. And we have a more mature spiritual perspective on that particular issue. Not in this case. Though. Exactly. Exactly. And that's one of the things that's really uncanny about this pair of dreams. That's a bit unusual to have such a strong emotional feeling of upset while not actually being present as the dreamer. So even though you're feeling that way, there's no use of the dreamer's willpower in this dream. The dreamer is just watching and potentially learning from this, not participating. War, as I think you were hinting at, the universal meaning of war is conflict and it's specifically inner conflict. And at that point, we need to talk about your past and the- And your relationship with your brother. You do have a twin brother. This is true. Okay. Yes, I, I am an identical twin. We are mere image identical twins. So I'm right-handed and he's left-handed. Interesting. That's fascinating. We both have Norwegian names. They had no idea what the names actually meant. They're just common Nordic names. As it turns out my name, and I, I looked into this sometime in 2008 or so, following the experience in Baker City, but my name actually means beloved in Norwegian. And my twin brother's name means separated. Wow. Yeah. And that's a whole nother can of worms, but there you go. G.I. Joe was the, the toy. I'll just say the world, really, that we shared so closely with such passion. Take a couple of minutes or so and fill us in a little bit about what your life was like in early childhood, having a, an identical twin. Generally, we had a, a very loving and supportive family, but there was an underlying sense of insecurity, let's say financially or resource-wise, to the extent that when my mom learned that she was pregnant with twins and she was seven months pregnant at that point. She instinctively and immediately blurted out to her doctor, oh my God, what am I going to do? Can I put one of them up for adoption? Mm. And based on the character of our names, I have a, a strong sense that it was my twin brother that identified with that statement mm. the most, his name being separated, my name being beloved. I think there was just a Ha, ah, we know who that is. But my mom got over that very quickly. And she was a deeply loving and supportive mom, and my dad as well. But there was always an underlying sense of, let's say, material insecurity. And we moved a lot when we did every two or three years. And my, my twin brother and I were never on board. <laughs> we were very domestic. We loved our nest. We loved our home space. We love to be able to just sit quietly and play together, play within our imaginations. My brother and I, had, we just shared that space. And with every successive move and the, the challenges that they bring in terms of making new friends and adjusting to a new environment, my twin brother fell into one another ever more deeply as a point of support and a sense of balance. And my parents very consciously were doing everything they could to encourage a sense of individuation. But every move that we made caused us to gravitate more and more tightly around one another mm -hmm. to the point that when at the age of, let's say about nine, we moved and my twin brother and I were so adamantly against that move. And he and I made a sacred pact 
it didn't need to be spoken. My twin brother and I were well-versed in sympathetic communication, let's call it. So we didn't speak pact ever, but we had a very clear understanding that he and I together as one had the capacity to fight the world, to fight reality. We needed to fight this move. We needed to fight the idea that we had just been put in this new location. And we just did everything we could to fight integrating into that space. We resisted making friends. We resisted socializing. There was a, just a strong sense of resistance that it was us, twin brother, and myself against the world. We face we against reality itself. Obviously, there's a lot of conflicting dynamics, things that push you together that are sort of pressures trying to tear your family apart or your stability. These conflicts are obviously going to be tied up in the symbol of this G.I. Joe war. But the experience that you've shared of having a twin brother and the way that you're describing it, I think some people are probably going to try to put it in their own sibling lenses. And I don't think that it's easy for people to relate to a sense of almost being one person with this other. Precisely. Thank you for reminding me of that, Thomas, because without any doubt, the way I would describe it was one person, one soul, with two just happened to have two separate bodies that were always in very close proximity. And you've also mentioned that puberty as a developmental stage really drove a wedge. Can you say a little bit about that? Precisely. Yeah. It wasn't immediate that we hit puberty and an interest begins to grow, obviously, in the opposite sex in this case. And Sorn and I resisted that too for a couple of years because there was an instinctive understanding that that was going to have to split us apart. So with my Trump brother, he stuck with that program. Eventually his friends dubbed it the contract with the earth. I'm an asexual being. I am a child of nature. I feel closer to trees and rocks than humans. But there was a, a phase of what's called asexuality, where we had to push sexuality away in order to maintain our union. And at some point, reality strikes. It struck me hard, and it struck me first. I'm the firstborn twin as well. And I fell in love. And the result of that was an inherent breach in my relationship with my twin brother. I could not maintain that tight relationship with my brother and simultaneously have this budding, growing intimacy with a young woman. My twin brother took that very, very personally, and he felt the profound sense of betrayal. And we basically had a divorce. Yeah. I can't really describe that in any other way. That is such an interesting way of using that term because I think people can really relate to what you're saying. They can feel the emotional power of that. Yeah. I know that the weight and the conflict of moving through a divorce. As, as a husband and wife or as partners would do. Those same feelings were certainly present. It's just that you're separating from your twin at the age of 16. So let's circle back to the G.I. Joe dream. So that sense of being at one with this other human being, it seems looking over the entire dream, everything you've shared, both of these dreams, there's a very profound part of you, Leif, and please elaborate on this or correct us if we've misunderstood, but there's a very profound part of you that is unity seeking, that deeply knows on a cellular level, the things that you experienced in your spiritual awakening are real. And they're more real than this human plane that we all live together on. Exactly. You had an experience that I think karmically was meant to allow you to know that or at least be prepared for that spiritual awakening. And that experience was being twinned. 
Right. I understand where you're going with that, Thomas. I'm just stepping back from it for a moment. I'm stepping back from the emotional impact, but we have a state of unity and it acts as a analogy, a state of unity between two individuals, twins. And that acts as a point of synthesis. If we move beyond the material, if we move back to what you shared with us about your spiritual awakening, one of the conclusions we can draw is that the essence of our material universe at its depths is love. Absolutely. And that's exactly what you lived through as a very young child, growing through all these years with your twin brother. Absolutely. And it, it, and it's, it's fascinating because there's an intimacy there that is so profound and has nothing to do with sexuality. But the impact of the union that my twin brother and I experienced showed itself over and over again in my relationships with women because I was continually trying to recapitulate, re relive, experience that profound state of unity. Uh, and I wasn't accustomed to all of the effort required to really reach intimate states of being with another person. With my home brother, it's just, it was natural. It's how we came in with all that individuals carry to put enough of that stuff aside or relax it or release it so that two people can come together and truly share at a deep level. It's a tremendous skill. It's a tremendous amount of work. It takes time. It takes practice. And it does take the effort of our will to be able to go that distance. I was completely unaccustomed to that. Mm -hmm. I agree. Relationships take a lot of will and they're difficult. And there's so much bliss and beauty and sweetness and joy as well that does take work. Yeah. And your upbringing with your brother just made it hard, I think, for you to connect with others because it, it did take so much effort. And so that's a great segue back to your spiritual awakening. It was in the immediate aftermath of the breakdown of a relationship with a woman. Exactly. So you were doing that same soul seeking that you had succeeded in with your brother and that deep knowing that this is true, whereas other kinds of relationship are artifice and things that we experience are often very artificial on this human plane. And then you have another relationship breakdown because it's not possible to achieve that state of union. And then as soon as you are alone with your own inner essence, you're gifted this profound awakening of, I'm experiencing that exact thing that I wish for deeply within myself and outwardly through the entire universe. I'm having that experience perhaps for the first time since you had it with your twin brother. And I'll point out that particular relationship was the first time that I had realized a level of partnership that could begin to reflect the relationship that I had with my twin brother. And as I say this, for the very first time, beginning to feel and identify some of the feelings that my twin must have felt, I was the one that really initiated the end of our relationship, the end of our twinship, as we normally understood it. And then just began to realize oh. how profoundly painful and disturbing that must have been at home. And then I find myself on the receding end of that at the age of 32 in 2007. And it was impossible. I could not begin to comprehend what was taking place. 
which is why I ended up running miles and miles and miles mm. in the hills outside of Baker City because I had nothing left. I was in a state of such complete despair and non-comprehension that I know that I was at the end of my rope. If I had had a gun, I would have, I'm sure, but I would have ended my life. I didn't have a gun. I had my feet and I could run. Oh. Then I went on my spiritual journey. In that moment, as I said, I was hijacked by spirit. Thank you for learning with us today on DreamSpeak. Join us next time for part two of Leif's dream, Dancing from Illusion to Liberation. You can find this podcast on all popular streaming services. Email us a dream today at contact at dreamspeak.us. Check out our YouTube channel for a free introductory dream course. Connect with DreamSpeak for even more learning. Our socials are in the description. Our theme music was composed by me, Ricka. This podcast does not constitute medical advice. If you have concerns about your well-being, talk to your doctor or a mental health professional.